The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. I invite you to take a Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair close by you. We're on page 954. And while you're looking there, if you're new to Parkwood, there is a connect card in a little pocket on the back of a chair. We'd like for you to take it as a guest and fill out the information and drop it in the offering plate. That lets us know that you were here worshiping with us today. We promise not to show up at your house in any unannounced fashion at all. Uh, We will simply use your contact information to reach out to you, to get to know you. You place that in the offering plate at the end of our service. That's the only way we want you to participate. Well, I'm speaking to those of your guests. If you're new to Parkwood and you're trying to figure it out, here's what we do. We preach straight through a book of the Bible. There'll be a little exception next week because of the issues this text raises. I'm going to preach Matthew 18 in concert with 1 Corinthians 5. But even though I'll speak to some things at the end of the message, there's not something in the church that precipitated this sermon. The reason I'm preaching 1 Corinthians 5 is because this is where we're at in 1 Corinthians. And we believe all of the Bible is God's word and that all of it is to be preached and taught and all of it is to be obeyed and brought into our life. Amen? So we come to this text. Now, this is hard. I lady come up afterwards. She said, when you said this was hard, you meant it. And I said, well, this, there's no easy way to preach 1 Corinthians 5. However, however, if you understand the core meaning of 1 Corinthians 5, that which is hard makes sense. And why it is so necessary in the life of the church. So I invite you to stand as I read from this passage. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We acknowledge this is the word of God. And we plead and pray now that you would help us to make sense of it. Lord, I confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters and those gathered in this room that our sensibilities rise up within us and we want to push back to a sermon like this. So Lord, take your word through the power of the Holy Spirit and instruct us and help us to understand the the, the deeper meaning here. That this is the holiness of your name. And may we ponder that in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So Mark Dever points this out. Most of you in this room, or many of you, the best known Bible verse while you were growing up was John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's no longer true. The best known Bible verse now is Matthew 7.1. There you go. Judge not that you be not judged. It's the only verse people know. Don't judge me. So when I preach a sermon like this, man, that's going to well up inside of you. Don't judge. Well, we're talking about church discipline, and church discipline requires judgment on behalf of God's people. So let me define what I mean by church discipline. Church discipline is the practice of the church to correct, rebuke, and warn those who are living in unrepentant sin. Every word in there is important. Church discipline is the practice of the church to correct, rebuke, and warn those who are living in unrepentant sin. Now, primarily, this takes place privately and informally. We're going to see that next week in Matthew 18. However, when it is rejected privately and informally, it becomes formal and public. And that's what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is dealing with the formal public, and I'm going to use the word excommunication of a man from the church at Corinth for unrepentant, grievous sin. So it begs this question from the beginning. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you be that harsh? Here's why. The primary concern in this text is the mission and purity of the church of Jesus Christ. That's the core issue. The secondary issue is the good of the individual. And that's important and crucial and eternal. So it's for the good of the individual and it's for the good of the Christian community. So here's the main idea. In order to protect the church, unrepentant sin must not be overlooked but dealt with in humility and by decisive action. So let's first deal with humility. In order to protect the church, unrepentant sin must not be overlooked, but dealt with in humility. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, let's make sure we're understanding this text. Paul's not saying that you live in a culture of sexual immorality. They all knew that. Corinth was a sexually debased place, like where we live. Here's the issue, that among the members of the church, among you, there is sexual immorality reported. This means it's well known. People know this. 
And it's not just that there's sexual immorality. Let me define sexual immorality before I go on. That is sexual sin outside or sexual sin outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. You used to just be able to say marriage. Marriage of a man and a woman. Now, before we think, move on thinking about sexual immorality for a moment, I just want to illustrate from my church history for a minute. As I observe, I was born in 1966. That makes me really old to a lot of you and the same age as many of you. All right. When we came along, our parents' generation uh, found free love. They had a big worship service in Woodstock to celebrate it. If you've ever researched Woodstock, that's what it was. It was a celebration of sexual freedom. That generation became or were a part of churches and their parents panicked and didn't know what to do, so they didn't do anything. Then came my generation. It was basically by the 80s, 90s, as it is today, it was just expected that young people were going to experiment sexually. And it just wasn't addressed. It just wasn't something that was said anything about. Now, now I'm pastoring these people as adults. And here's what they expect. If I decide to switch partners and get a new spouse, who are you to judge me? Sexual immorality is everywhere. And it's in the church, and we're pretending like it's not there. Now, there are other issues here other than sexual immorality. But, but this man is not just sexually immoral. This is why Paul moves to immediate action. This man's sin is grievous. He is involved with his father's wife. He said, was well, that his mother? Most commentators believe the way this is worded, it's his stepmother. Christostom, a first century preacher, said that he thinks this man was wealthy. Kind of explains things, doesn't it? Wow, he was getting away with this in the light of the church. Now, this, this, this man who probably had some form of influence was being overlooked. And Paul identifies what they were doing as arrogance. Now, he's already, he's already addressed the arrogance in the Corinthian church. But, but here's what astounds me. Their earlier arrogance was over division. They were dividing up over things. Look at this. They're together on this one. Even though they're divided over things, they're together on this, that they're approving of this man's sin. They're either approving by saying nothing or, or going back to Christosom again, he, he thinks what the Corinthians were doing is they were saying, man, we're just going to extend grace. We're just going to love this guy. Now this false view of grace and tolerance, they allowed him to continue on. And Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't, shouldn't you look at this and mourn over this sin? Brothers and sisters, when we overlook and allow open sin in the life of the church, we look like the world. And, and, and not just do we look like the world. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. It's not just that we look like the world. God's going to treat us like the world. And if you... 
There are a lot of reasons the church is dying in the West, in America, and it's dying rapidly. I believe one of the primary reasons is this issue right here. The church started tolerating sin and turning its back to it and letting it happen. And God's done with the church like he's done with the world. It says this, since they, verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's judgment. When God gives people over to do what they want to do, that's judgment. Those of you who have ever heard Romans 1 preach, well, it's coming. Folks, stop talking about it's coming. You're living it. It's here. People do what they want to do. And there's this expectation now the church is supposed to roll over and do it. Look what it says. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now look at this, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, God's going to judge this. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. <laughs> I had a pastor tell me about a year ago, well, I pastor a progressive Baptist church. <laughs> Here's what he meant. I pressed him. He meant that we give hearty approval to those who practice sin. That's what he meant. Now, the way you get around that is you don't believe the parts of the Bible you don't want to believe. You just throw them out. Brothers and sisters, we either believe the Bible is the word of God or we have nothing. In their tolerance, they're, they're tolerating this open sin and instead of arrogance, they should grieve because their boasting is not good. Verse 6, you see it? Your boasting is not good. Now he's going to give an illustration. Now, I probably have your attention just because of this sermon, but I'm telling you, the next 10 minutes is going to require some complex thinking in your brain. So I'm warning you now, you got to think to get through these next 10 minutes because this illustration requires Bible knowledge and putting several things together at one time. So he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he starts an illustration. How many of you know what Fleshman's is? It's a little packet. Raise your hand if you know what Fleshman's is. It's what I figured more than half of you are clueless. It's yeast. All right? So you put this in dough, in the yeast, and that's active. It's alive. And it begins to spread and move throughout the dough, and that's what makes it rise and become a loaf of bread. If you don't have yeast, no rise. Just flat. Unleavened. That's where unleavened comes in. Just flat like a pancake. So, a little bit of leaven, only takes a little bit, spreads and leavens the whole loaf. So he's got an illustration going. So you got one illustration. Now we're going to layer it up again. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. So here's what he's saying. As Christians, you're unleavened bread. There's no leaven in you. And what does that mean? Now he adds illustration number two. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You say, what's that got to do with leaven? You remember at the Exodus, God told them to make unleavened bread because they didn't have time for the yeast to rise because God was about to set them free. And that night, 
They sacrificed a lamb. They placed the blood over the door frame, over the lintel of their door. And that night, the judgment of God, the death angel passed over Egypt and everyone who had the blood over their door, they were saved. So the illustration is this. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the one who has kept us from the judgment of God. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He does this all in his letters. If you can start to learn to see this, you understand Paul's letters much better. He will give a command. Sometimes he'll lead with a command. And then he'll circle that with an indicative. So be going, what's that? <laughs> indicative means who you are. So who you are defines the command. So who are we? What do we extract out of this illustration as to who we are? As the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorpost secured exemption from the destroying angel, the blood of Christ has given us exception from the stroke of divine justice in that he took the stroke for us. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ was slain in our place. And in the same sense, he is our Passover lamb. It was a vicarious death. That means... He died in our place to redeem us from all sin. So, if we continue in sin, we are saying that what Christ did is not necessary or my life is contrary to his death. That I'm not interested in his benefit. To ignore sin is to diminish and undermine the redemptive event of Christ's death and resurrection. Because when Christ was raised, we were raised to new life. Not only did he keep us from the wrath of God, and this is where modern evangelicalism has lost its way. All we talk about is forgiveness, and we've stopped talking about the power of the resurrection. That we're new. There's a new life in Christ. Now, here's what, this is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you're new. You're a new lump. You're, you're, you're unleavened. So because that's who you are, indicative, here's the imperative. It's in verse 7. Look at it. You see it? The imperative? Cleanse out the old leaven. Here's what he's saying. That man is old leaven. He's unrepentant. Purge him. Get the old leaven out. Now let's, let's, let's work through this illustration. Why would you purge the man? Because this man's sin is implicating the rest of the church. Mark Dever said it this way. Sin that no one deals with becomes sin that everyone has to deal with. So I'll come back to my illustration earlier. The reason there's so much sexual sin in the church is because we tolerated it with our kids 
30 years ago. We must act. So why do we not act? Why, why does the church not act? Well, we're scared to death of people. We're afraid of how that person's going to respond. So let me give you three ways I found people respond when I have confronted them in their sin over the years or known others confront. Number one, and I find this very often, people respond with godly sorrow and they repent. A lot of people, particularly a person who truly is regenerate, who's living in sin, is miserable. They're absolutely miserable. And all it takes is the prophet. Like David come, I mean, Nathan coming to David, it just takes someone to point it out and it's just like a moment, it washes over them and they repent in grief. The second group is very different. The moment you confront, the dukes come up, indignation, they're ready to fight. They justify everything they do. They even quote Bible verses, which frightens me. And I'll say that. Man, people start quoting Bible verses to justify their sin. I'm going to say, you scare me. You better watch that. But here's what I know. If you're going to fight with me over your sin, at least there's some conviction. Now, fighting back is not going anywhere. Here's the third group. They scare me to death. So, who cares? These are the people that usually just get in their car and leave. Group two does too, sometimes. We're so scared of this because we live in an individualistic culture. That means... We're all left up to choose our own way before the Lord. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we're able to choose our own way. Even, even if in the church we say, okay, I see my brother or sister going down a pathway of sin. If we say something to them, then we often from that point still leave it up to them to whether or not they work it out. It's not what Paul's teaching here. That's not what the Bible teaches because the impact of the sin on the body must be taken into consideration. That that little bit of leaven affects the whole loaf. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wish I could find this article we tried. It was about six weeks ago when I read it. The title of the article was Charismatic Atheists. And this pastor of a similar church to Parkwood wrote about people who come to his church every week who stand and celebrate and hoot and holler and worship and lift their hands and clap their hands and walk out and live as if there is no God whatsoever. You're the people who scare me. Who can stand here and sing about redemption and the love of Jesus and then walk out of here and live in utter rebellion to God. That's frightening for you. We, we can't be a people like that. When we come to celebrate the festival, that is, we come to celebrate the Passover every week, we come to celebrate what Christ has done. We don't do it with malice and evil. We do it with sincerity and with truth. Turn to Romans chapter 6. By the way, those of you who are panicking going, man, this is the first point. Dude's still going. 
The first point is crucial. Crucial. Look at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now watch him. He's going to do indicative imperative. We're starting with the indicative. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into his death or baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So, so here's the solution to sin. Look up here. Stop it. No. That's not the solution. It will never work. All the Ten Commandments do is condemn us. They prove that we are sinners. It is only Christ who can save us. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lived to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Now here's where the church comes in. We are in Christ. We are the body of Christ. So when we look around and we say someone else who claims to be in Christ is living in unrepentant sin, we say, leaven. That cannot be tolerated. Repent. Matthew 18 lays out a loving, caring process of how you do that. Unfortunately, some people come to a point and say, I will do what I want to do. Therefore, what do we do? In order to protect the church, the unrepentant must be removed. Formal church discipline should occur when sins that are outward serious and unrepentant. For though absent in the body and present in spirit and present also pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, verse 3, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man for the destruction of the flesh so that the flesh may be saved in the day of the Lord. He tells them what to do and he tells them why to do it. So unlike the Corinthians, Paul acts decisively and quickly due to the nature of sin and the attitude of the church. He tells them when they are assembled, he doesn't assign this to the pastor. He assigns this to the entire church, of which a pastor certainly would be involved. That when they are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Lord Jesus, so in the name and the authority of Christ, the church assembles together and deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20, but he explains to others handed over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander. What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? It means that we are turning them, if you will, back over to Satan's sphere where they once were, outside of the edifying, caring environment of the church where God is at work. One writer said it this way, it is equivalent to being dropped defenseless and disowned into enemy territory. 
Now, if you've ever wondered why we write church letters, it's for this reason. So that if I am put out of church, I don't go down the street and join Baptist Church B, that that church has a responsibility to say why I was put out of that church. That got real quiet in here. So what are they doing this? Why? It's in the end of the verse. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Exclusion from the church will, it is hoped, spur this man to repentance so that he renounces his sin and turns to righteousness. The purpose is not to only punish him. It is to remedy him, to wake him up, and to cause him to see the effect of his sin and the hope that on that final day he will be saved. Now Paul knew they were prone to overreact to this, so he says in verse 9, this is crucial, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would not need to go out of the world. So he's not looking for the church to become an isolated monastic community who just stays together and has no contact with sexually immoral people. He's getting to the mission of the church here. Folks, if we don't have contact with people outside the church who are described in these ways as sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, The gospel's never going to penetrate into the lives of the people who need them. What he's saying is that we we protect the holiness of the church and the mission of the church when we go to people who claim to be Christians who are acting like they're not a Christian to put them out of the church. He says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, then he expands. It's very similar to the list above. Or greed, or idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So not to associate means that we're not to mingle with, to treat them as if they're a brother or sister. That means we should not associate with members of the church who profess to be Christ followers, who do not live as Christ commands us to live. So in one sense, you must treat those who have been excommunicated like a non-Christian, but you've got to understand this. They belong to a particular category of non-Christian. They are non-Christians who claim to be Christians. You say, how can I judge whether or not somebody's a Christian? Brothers and sisters, the Bible is explaining this to you. All you have to go off of is their obedience to God and what you can see. So if what you can see is disobedience to God, you've got to assume that's not a Christian. There's no new creation. This person has not been transformed by the gospel. He says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? I'm not judging the non-believers. God's going to do that. And he's going to judge everybody, but those who are professing Christ, those are who people we judge. That means not that we enact final judgment on them, but that we are placing the word of God by the lives of God's people and saying that these things line up. And if they don't and people are unrepentant, then you purge the evil person from among you. Next week, we'll look in depth at Matthew 18. 
where this culminates in the same way that you are to let them be as a Gentile or tax collector. Now, what that means is this, and I'll explain it more next week, that you're removing someone from membership and normal association with the church, and you're refusing them access to the Lord's table, that is communion. I don't have a lot of time, but let me just illustrate this. Um, Often what happens, what we've found happening over the last several years is we get to the third step of church discipline and most people figure it out and they just leave. When they ask for a letter to another church, we write a letter saying this is not a member in good standing. You've heard that in members meetings where we've said that. Now, what if I see that brother or sister or that professing brother or sister who's not living like, if I see them in the community, do I snub them? Don't answer yet. The answer is no. I always greet them. <laughs> There's one particular individual. The moment I walk away, he takes to social media and rants on me. Every time. And I know he's going to. But I greet him because, and, and, and every way I'll try to form, I'm pleading for him to repent. But I don't sit down and have coffee with him. I don't eat breakfast with him. I don't treat him like he's my brother. See the difference? We're not Dwight, shun, unshun. Okay? That was an office illustration and went right by a bunch of you. This is about love and humility. So what then? Two things. We must obey God when members of this local church continue in unrepentant sin. I can hear your excuses. Man, church does this, it'll die. Well, Parkwood's been doing it for a long time. She's not dead. But you've got to get a bigger understanding of what church discipline is. So let me read this as it leads us to thinking next week. Church discipline, finally, is a ministry of the whole church. It begins formatively in the pulpit when the preacher preaches. His biblical words correct our false thinking and living. Discipline continues as we speak God's word to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How easily our affections and emotions go astray when the songs and the preaching work to correct. The discipline then works through our conversations with each other after the service and into the week as we gather, when we encourage, instruct, warn, and admonish one another according to God's word. Failing to practice church discipline undermines the call to repentance by the preacher. It undermines a congregation's belief in the lordship of Christ, and it works against the church's ability to embrace a robust, life-changing gospel and call to holiness. The famous 19th century Baptist theologian D.L. Dagg once said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. What if Dr. Dagg was alive today? What would he see? By the way, this little book, Understanding Church Discipline, if I've blown your mind today, is a quick biblical assessment of this whole subject. And they're available out in the book area. Paul clearly says, emphatically twice, but if you study the text very carefully, six different times in this text, he says, purge the evil person. Put him out. Why? 
For the sake of the individual, that he may be saved on the last day. For the sake of the church, that she might not be defiled. And don't miss this. For the sake of the name of Jesus in Corinth. We will not allow Parkwood to be knowingly embarrassed by you living a duplicitous life and claiming to be a member of this church. The name of Jesus in this community is too important. It is too crucial. Now, good news. I wonder how many of you know, don't raise your hand, how many of you know this man repents? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's the second so what. When the one being disciplined repents, the body of Christ must humbly receive the individual of forgiveness. Now once you do this, it's very awkward. There's no way around it. It's awkward. What do you do? How do you treat them when you see them? I've tried to help you with that. What do you do when they repent? He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure. So he has caused me some pain. But to put it, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So this man's caused you pain. I understand why you'd still be upset with him. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So in other words, it's done its work. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So when someone comes to godly sorrow and repentance... We as the people of God need to receive them. And depending on what they have done, we got to be careful how we bring them back into the life of the church. So let me just say this. This happened in the previous service. A man under discipline came up to me and he said, I got asked to take the offering today. What do I do? I said, I'll take care of it. So I go to the lead usher. I said, this man's under discipline. Don't ask him to take offering. Now he's repentant. That's why he was here today. But he hadn't worked all the way through it yet. You understand the difference? But I hugged him right when he walked up because I knew this was a hard sermon today. I just embraced him and loved him for a minute. When somebody repents, you grab them, you love them, you embrace them in the name of Jesus. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. So they, they thought maybe Paul wouldn't let them forgive him. He's saying, forgive the man. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for this, your sake and the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is not to be a means of causing further trouble in the life of the church. So I'll illustrate. I was standing in the lobby one Sunday, and a man come through the doors that had been a part of discipline, and he walked straight to me. I thought, oh boy, this was going to be fun. And he said to me, am I welcome? And I said, brother, have you repented? And he erupted. He began to weep. And I reached out and I grabbed him. And when he came to his senses, he realized back at my father's farm, even the servants eat better than me. So he went home. And his father saw him coming from a long way off and he ran out to meet him and he embraced him. That's the parable of the prodigal son. Brothers and sisters, church discipline 
works. For the good of the individual, for the good of the church, and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, with grief, I'm asking you to plead with me. For the first time in a very long time, it's not just one, we have multiple individuals right now who will not repent. And we are close to have to tell the church. We as your elders and pastors and growth group leaders who are a part of this, we are deeply broken and perplexed. So before these things become public, will you right now with me plead with God that men and women who profess to be followers of Jesus and members of this church who are living in an unrepentant sin will repent. And if you're living in hidden sin today, may this message wake your soul to repentance. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word, for the clarity of it, for the compassion of it, for the directness of it. Lord, we take this word and we plead on behalf of people who are living in open, unrepentant sin that has grieved so many in this church that we have come to the point now that we'd have to call for this kind of prayer. Oh God, use this today. Use us today. Use your word by the power of the Holy Spirit today to waken them to repentance that they might turn to you. Lord, I confess in my own heart and the hearts of every person in this room, just like the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Thank you for your word and the power of the Spirit, but thank you for the gift of the local church, which you use to call us back. So God, call us back today. Call us back. Do your work among us by your grace and for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. The pastors and ladies will be... Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.